Hey y'all, this is Monica with part two of my chat with Anthony Raimondo, where we cover Marbury v. Madison. That's the Thomas Jefferson era case that destroyed the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution. I mean, that's what I think, that's my opinion. But you should listen and learn to what Anthony thinks. And if you want to hear part one of our chat, Anthony tells it like it is, like he always does, but about plea bargains. So that's already posted on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. And if you're a regular listener, you know I've been traveling a lot, but I am still managing to post twice a week. And if you want to help me cover costs, which I am not actually doing at the moment, please consider joining Deep Dives Premium on iTunes. It's only five bucks a month, and it eliminates all the advertising. It delivers content early, and it even has a bonus show once in a while. But most of all, it is way more helpful to me in getting from red to black than if you suffer through the ads. So that's a win-win if you ask me. And I do thank you for your support. Uh, you can also join rockfin.com slash deep dives. Now you'll get all my content there. A lot of times with video, also totally commercial free. It's usually posted in real time because I do most of my interviews live streamed. And you get all the other Rockfin creators. So that's a fantastic bargain. And it is really all you need subscription wise. So anyway, enough of that. I'm not trying to pitch. I just um, want you to know because I do think the commercial free should be a win-win for everybody. And I do hope regardless of how you listen that you do enjoy part two of my chat with Anthony Raimondo. I want to hit Marbury v. Madison and I want to tell people, okay, so Marbury v. Madison is the case where... It is during Thomas Jefferson's presidency where it's attributed to that case that the Supreme Court has the right to strike down congressional law for being unconstitutional. And I object to that premise, that principle. I think it is wrong. I, I always just assumed that or I looked into it and said, you know, the federal government doesn't really have uh, real enforcement measures to go into the states and enforce congressional law. It seems to me that the remedy for unconstitutional congressional law is just state nullification. The state should just ignore it and not enforce it. And I thought, so I felt I objected to Marbury v. Madison because I thought it said something different. And what I have discovered, what I now believe, and it's this I just sent you, is that it's Marbury v. Madison did say that, among other things, what, uh, uh, and that it is misinterpreted to give judicial supremacy in this uh, country. And the article I read, I would just, I loved it. Michigan Law Review, 2003, The Irrepressible Myth of Marbury by Michael Stokes Paulson, uh, a judicial, uh, legal scholar, obviously, and a law professor and all that. I sent that to you in advance, but um, what do you think? Like you and I are in agreement that judicial supremacy is on its face unconstitutional, right? Oh, absolutely. I, the idea that that any branch of government, by the way, least of all, an unelected branch of government that serves for life. Right. Has the ability to dictate what is what is constitutional and not to the other branches of government is entirely offensive to what the Constitution exists for. Yeah. To the to the concept of constitution of, of a constitution. There's nothing more antithetical to the idea of a constitutional republic than that. I mean. You know, we let these nine clerics hold this incredible, nine unelected clerics hold this incredible authority 
over over the nation. And so, you know, what has been the result of that is we now have these political parties not fighting over policy necessarily, but jockeying for control of the court. Yes, and that's the wedge issue. There's Roe versus Wade. There's also gun rights. But when you say like Republicans and Democrats are both corrupt, they're not ideological, even if they spout the same ideology, just vote for Ron Paul or whatever. I know you wouldn't do that. Maybe you would. But uh, that uh, the ultimate answer always. So when I was on the radio, people would call the ultimate answer, ultimate answer. It's just like when you argue for, you know, whatever against world government or something. And the, when the answer is Nazis or Hitler, like, you know, that that's it. That's the only thing we have left. It's but the Supreme Court. And uh, and it's this wedge issue that's used. And the Supreme Court just has too, too much power. But I feel like I really want to lay out the three pillars of this Paulson's arguments very quick. I just want to say that what he says is judicial supremacy has to be wrong because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And the judiciary can say that they're interpreting the Constitution, but they really have no authority to interpret the Constitution for the other branches. And the, and what Marbury v. Madison was about with respect to the judiciary was that when they are applying law in a specific case, they are not required to uphold a law that they deem to be unconstitutional, just like, in my opinion, similar to that juries can nullify a law for any reason. That if they, if they're, if they see a defendant who comes up, I think this is true, then sees a defendant who comes up and says, uh, I did all this stuff and this is the law which I broke, but the law is unjust. The jury can can not convict him based on that, can choose not to convict him. But in, in any case, the only reason I'm bringing that up is that that supposedly, or that's what I understand, the, the real meaning of Marbury was that the judiciary does not have to apply congressional law that it considers unconstitutional in a specific case. Not that it can strike down congressional law. Then the second thing was each branch has interpretive independence. So each branch is required to interpret the Constitution as they, when they either execute the laws or set the laws or adjudicate cases under the law, the three branches, they must look to the Constitution ultimately, not look to a, a, a Supreme Court opinion. That's stare decisis, which he also says is not necessarily kosher. Um, but the third thing he says, and it took me really reading a lot of his argument to completely understand into it what he was saying, the obligation of the oath to defend the Constitution gives recourse directly to the Constitution. So when, especially with the president, he says that they all, all, even state governments, even state governments are required, the actors there are required to take an oath to the U.S. Constitution, which means they are swearing to abide by it, which means they have to look at it themselves. And uh, he, the president says he has to um, swear an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. That um, when he is supposed to faithfully execute the laws of the land. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And that's the one that he's supposed to uh, use as his touchstone. But that also, he says, this Paulson says that at the time, oaths 
were very serious. And I was raised that oaths were serious. Swearing is a sin unless it's under very serious. If I said to my dad, like, oh, I vowed never to eat, you know, sugar again. He's like, never vow. Like, if you're really going to vow, first of all, it's that's a minor thing and you shouldn't use a vow for that. But if you vow, you are swearing for the rest of your life in the eyes of God that you're not going to do that. That is a very serious matter. I was raised to think that. And apparently these people were too. So it is a personal responsibility for everyone who swears that oath to look to the Constitution itself in carrying out the state government or a congressional law, ex- executive law, or the Supreme Court. And that's all I got to say. Now, yeah. Yeah, I really like the article and I, I agree with your take on it. The only thing that um, I would take issue with in the article, and by the way, I particularly liked the that it's presented pursuant to the oath that it's actually an obligation of state and federal officers to refuse to follow anything that any other branch does that is um, unconstitutional. But the, a couple things that I really liked about it were, um, I like the fact that he really framed it as, you know, the best thing about the Constitution is that it's extremely unambiguous. Right, the language is it doesn't require much much interpretation. It's very very clear, and you know this idea that we have any debate over what it means and that it should be interpreted outside of what these words meant at the time. Right. And I'll, I'll use the second example, Second Amendment as an example. I love all these people like, well, the Second Amendment means like the military, a militia. No, what a militia was back then, and this is beyond dispute. I mean, even like the Oxford Dictionary says this. What a militia was, was normal members of the civilian population called to arms to defend the nation. It wasn't any sort of formal thing, right? They thought everyone should have guns in their possession so that if somebody like the British invaded, people could come out of their homes, summon to defend their country, and defend their country. I would would add that I actually look at the Second Amendment as possibly the only affirmative obligation placed on the people by the Constitution, not Obamacare, not to have health insurance, but that a militia is necessary. And pursuant to that, you must have the right to bear arms. I almost feel like a a militia is an obligation under the Constitution. And the the only understanding that they had of a militia was ordinary people literally picking up their guns and coming out of their homes to defend the nation. That's what they, that's what they understood a militia to be. And it's, it's just entirely, uh, entirely unambiguous. Um, I really liked the, the, where they talked about that the consequence of a breach of that oath, that's what impeachment is for. And that's why that's where the, the the power and the responsibility of Congress lies. That if judges start violating the Constitution, that um, they should be impeached for it. And then if a president violates the Constitution, they should be impeached from for it. So the checks and balances vis-a-vis the Constitution go all the way around. And of course, that is the problem that's so glaring. What what do you do about a Supreme Court justice who says something's a tax when it originated in the Senate? What do you do with that guy? <laughs> Which, of course, as we, as we know, they do violate the Constitution. We've oh, seen every them day. Do, we, we've <laughs> seen them do it. They've reversed their own precedent. So clearly, they're Good you know point. they're not you know the, the 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 Supreme Court. And it's just, it becomes this corrupting influence on the nation, which is what it's become, is the Supreme Court now has become the ultimate arbiter of public policy 
for difficult issues, and abortion is a perfect example of this, difficult issues which really have no obvious answer that should be resolved politically, not by judicial fiat, right? Yes, yes. And if you look at what has happened in other countries with abortion, whatever your position is on it, every other country in the world has resolved the issue of abortion politically, not judicially, and they have way less conflict about it than we do. And it yep. could it, it it belongs in the purview of the states, just like murder and and health and welfare. Of course, why? Well, I mean, it, constitutionally, marriage is the one that is most significantly and directly vested in the states, and was specifically vested in the states. The idea that any any, any federal court or any federal authority can tell a state how they can define marriage is just ludicrous. The Defense of Marriage Act, I think, was a setup to get that the Supreme Court to get involved. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. That was outrageous. That's exactly, that's exactly why they did it. And it's such an overstep of the Supreme Court's authority. Um, marriage is like the oldest thing that falls you know, unambiguously within state, within, within state authority. And you know, Why do you say this, that? Because one of the original principles of the Constitution uh, arises under the full faith and credit clause, which is that a marriage that is valid in the state that is performed, in which it was performed, is valid everywhere. Right. And that's because originally people don't have much of a sense of the history of what a Wild West early the early United States were when it came to religion. From the colonial days when you had deep, deep religious differences between the states based on their view of Christianity. But by the time you got to the 1800s, you had this Wild West attitude towards religion where there were cults and witchcraft and wild new religions like springing up all over the place. Mormonism. Well, Mormonism was the one <laughs> no, that, that was successful. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, no, but Mormonism that arose out of that, right? Yeah. I mean, Joseph Smith began as a guy who was digging up Native American artifacts for basically cult reasons. Like, I mean, oh, he was yes, a yes, yeah, he was a grifter, okay, but he was he was he was a con man. Man, but you what just he would do is, you don't care who you offend. I mean, I, I don't really care, but it's just I would he would feel nervous he, hitting. He would he well, I mean, this stuff is is I know it's not to be. I mean, he 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 defiled graves. He dug up. That the I graves, hate. The we shouldn't even of, go into the pyramids. The, what the British did oh, to the Egypt. Don't get me started. I mean, he, <laughs> he dug up. I want to get you started. He dug up graves to steal from those graves to feed this weird religious freedom that was going on. Like the freedom. This was the first country anywhere in the world that actually had religious freedom, right? Historically, all across Europe, right? The the king declared what the church was for the nation, and that was the religion that everyone was. So the, the whole concept of freedom of religion just spiraled into all kinds of crazy directions by the time you got into the 19th century and the time when Mormonism arose. So you had states that were hostile on religious grounds to marriages that had been performed in other states. And how that was resolved was under the full faith and credit clause if your marriage was valid in the state where it was performed, other states had to recognize it as valid. They didn't have to let two people in the same circumstance marry there. But if you got married in Georgia, right, Maine had to recognize you as a married couple. So if misogyny was illegal in one state, 
but it was <clears throat> recognized in another, right? Isn't that mixed marriages? Correct. Then if you had a mixed marriage and you went into a different state, they had to recognize that. Your kids were mm-hmm. bastards. Correct. Okay. Which frankly would have that been- That probably was I, the reason it came to, you know, all even- along, I always thought that would be the way the gay marriage thing would be resolved. Right. Is, is that certain yeah, states would- that's the way it should be. The, the correct constitutional way for it to be resolved is that certain states would legalize it, other states would not legalize it, but the states where it was illegal yeah. would have to recognize legally those married couples- because they had to recognize the laws of those states in terms of people's movement around around the country. And there's clear precedent for that application. Old pre- perfect. Very old precedent. It's very actually a perfect application because it's just mm-hmm. whatever this story is. Okay, so let's get back to Marbury v. Madison. So you like this article. What mm-hmm. um, What's your, but you and I talked about this long before either of us read this article. Do you, so do you think, um, Marbury v. Madison is bad policy, bad law, or misinterpreted, or all three. I think uh, the one thing I didn't like about the article is I think he was too forgiving of Marshall because you have to look at a few things that led up to Marbury versus Madison. I don't know how much you've, you know that the history there. I did think there was a history of judicial review on that kind of well, um, the laws. There was there was a history of judicial review where um, that was even going on in England where they were trying to give the courts in England the power of review over acts of parliament. But the specific history on this one is, and it's actually really interesting because I think it pertains well to today. So Adams was president. Oh uh, yes, yeah. And he lost uh, his reelection campaign. He lost to Jefferson. Adams was a federalist. They believed in a strong federal government. They believed in centralization, and they believed in a more industrial economy as opposed to an agricultural economy. Yes. Can I make the distinction that, like in other countries, where federalism technically actually means the opposite? Like Switzerland yes. is highly, yes. highly federalist, and I'm, our right. anti-federalists would really be the world's federalists. Right, but this is in the context of the colonies yes. where where federalism was viewed as the strong federal government. Got it. On the other side, again, this is where the lingo gets confusing to people of today. Jefferson was a Democrat Republican who believed in decentralization, the power of the states, the true republic, as opposed to a federally dominated system. And they were very pro-agriculture. And it was a very, very bitter division. Jefferson actually won the popular vote by a pretty good margin, but the electoral college was very close. So again, I laughed really hard when people were all upset that you know Trump was appointing Supreme Court uh, justices at the end of his presidency because what happened in the Adams presidency, I mean, three or four days before he left office, he appointed 60 federal judges, oh my God. including Marbury. And the, and the Senate rammed through the approval. They approved them all in mass, okay? So like a day or two before Adams left office... Um, the judicial commissions were delivered back then they were very big on these formalities so your 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 paper commission would be delivered to you and that's when you would accept your appointment as a judge marbury was one of a handful of these that didn't get delivered before adams left office and then madison i believe was was secretary of state to jefferson and he was his office that delivered the commissions and he refused to deliver the commission because jefferson's position was hey if the commission wasn't delivered before i took office <laughs> the deed wasn't done and it's all invalid now marbury argued that this was a non-discretionary once it had been appointed by the president 
and confirmed by the Senate that this was a non-discretionary duty to deliver the commission. So he was seeking a very old common law writ called a writ of mandamus, which is where a court commands a public official, a government official, to undertake an act that they are unambiguous, unambiguously required by law to do without any, any discretion. Okay, these writs exist to this day. Um, and that's what the dispute was about. Marshall, who wrote the opinion, should have never been on that case because he had been Secretary of State at one point for Adams. He should have recused himself. He was involved in the events of all of Right. That. Okay? So what we have is this early, deep political debate about a division about the future structure of the nation. More centralized, less centralized, more industrialized, less industrialized, state power versus federal power. And Marbury versus Madison arose in the midst of all this. Now, Marshall had been looking for a case. He wanted to establish some sort of power for the federal courts to, you know, the, the sort of mainstream view of it is that he wanted to establish the power of judicial review as we understand it today. I do mm -hmm. think the article is correct that he had a more nuanced understanding of it. He wanted the courts to be able to refuse to enforce unconstitutional laws, which is very different. Right. So it looked to me, okay, if that's true, if that was his ultimate goal, he couldn't just dive right into that because the, the starting point was that Congress asserted its supremacy, basically, or it was right. defaulted that Congress was. And, and what he's saying is that judiciary is not beholden to recognize Congress's supremacy. It can establish constitutionality on its own. Right. This is 1803. Right. So this was all very fresh. And the, the, the principles of the Constitution were something that was it was a very these were very animating principles for all of these men like we think we we're so used to our sort of crass and corrupt political ideology of today yeah. that these people i mean they all really had this good faith beliefs you really think so i do in many ways i mean yeah it's always a power struggle but i think you know, the documents were so fresh and so many of them yeah. had been a part of writing and establishing the contribute the Constitution. This was all very recent memory. I mean, again, we're talking 1803. And I would even say if you look into the 20th century, there were many, many people in in politics and business who came from a position of integrity. Right. Well, look, the, look at what you're talking about with the oath. To these men, yeah. the oath was something extreme. On both sides of the political divide, they would have all agreed that the oath is something that is significant right. and meaningful. Personal. Whereas nowadays, nowadays people are like, oh, ha, ha, this is an oath and cares, right? Like, No, I know. No, it's infuriating that they say, um, I think they shouldn't even touch the Bible, those slime it, balls. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, they would gladly put their hand on a stack of Bibles and lie. They yeah, well, the actually, time. they should not, they should have to merely like attest rather than use the Bible because they don't it's it's totally meaningless to them to use the Bible. It might in their in their world, their secular world, have more value to not use the Bible. They are not going to take you know, anything seriously. You know how many times I've Bible. watched people commit perjury? I, I just Oh, after swearing on a Bible? Not just that you don't do a Bible anymore, but just giving it right. oath to tell the truth. Right. I've testified in court proceedings, including my own when, when, I, when I was uh, at, at the state bar, but I also testified in a court proceeding in a case that I was involved in. Oh, really? Um, and I took that, I mean, a lot of lawyers have never testified under oath. Yeah. I took that oath really, really seriously. Like, I felt an obligation to tell the truth, but yeah. I've seen plenty of people who, like, they take that oath and then they just lie left and right and they don't even care. 
Yeah, um, I would have I would have a real problem. Like I've some fear of God kind of kicks in. Like I'm not a hundred percent sure there's a God, but I'm a hundred percent sure I'm not gonna swear to God well, and then lie. <laughs> at some point it also comes down it comes down to a matter of your own personal integrity, even if it's not yeah. religious for you. You know, I mean, and again, I think it is sinful to, to yeah. lie if you've sworn to tell the truth, but it's also a matter of like you have to look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, and like, it's all I, of that. It's just it's yeah. re, it's repugnant. It's impossible. So a, a, anyway, uh, Marshall had a, a very real and significant political problem, right? Because on one hand, you have this political fight between the Federalists and the Democrat Republicans, the Jeffersonians and Adams, right? On one hand, the Adams people were like, this is nonsense. These judicial appointments were complete. They cannot disregard this. But on the other hand, there was a very real fear on Marshall's part that if they enforced Marbury's commission and said, yes, Madison must deliver the commission, that Jefferson and Madison would simply refuse. And then what? Now you have a real constitutional crisis on your hands where we say the court has the power to issue this writ to compel Madison to act. Yeah. And Madison and Jefferson say, screw you. What are you going to do about it? Now, it's the executive. That's when they should be impeached. Right. Now, but we're less than 25 years into the existence of the United States. Right. This is a very fragile Republic, yeah. a republic that they were barely able to get together. Remember, the states were deeply divided. They were barely able to get this union to exist. And now it's going to be tested in an extremely fundamental way that had this gone wrong, could well have led to a breakup of the United States and the states going their own way and truly being separate from each other. Which, by the way, would have been an existential risk to the country because if you you remember the War of eighteen twelve hadn't happened yet. Do you really think oh, the British, yeah. the British would, would have definitely <laughs> right? Would the British have taken advantage of the opportunity to, to retake some, if not all, of the colonies right. had they broken apart over this dispute? Yeah, over the Federalists versus these Democrat Republicans. So Marshall had a very real practical problem on his hands. How do I solve this problem? So it's actually, this is the part that's very clever and somewhat ingenious. What they said was, if you read the decision, everybody focuses on the judicial review part. I love the political intrigue of it. They did say they handed the Federalists a victory. This is a valid appointment. It was completed. Madison was wrong not to deliver it. But then they looked at the text of the Constitution, and this is really ties into the judicial review part. They said the Constitution does not give the Supreme Court the authority to issue a writ of mandamus, which it doesn't. The statute that was at issue in Madison versus Marbury, and I can't remember the name of it now, but it was the, it was the activating statute for the federal courts. So the Constitution provides what the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is, but it leaves up to Congress to define the system of federal courts. So they had passed a statute to establish the federal court system and what their jurisdiction was. And one of the things they said is that the Supreme Court in that statute, the Supreme Court shall have the authority to issue writs of mandamus. Well, what Marshall did, he said, wait a minute. That's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution says nothing about writs of mandamus in the Supreme Court. It says they can hear cases arising under the Constitution. Right. We have no judicial authority to issue this writ. So Federalists, you're right. 
right? Because he couldn't say to he was a fe- he, he couldn't say to his own people he was a federalist himself. He couldn't say to them, "You're wrong. Shut up. <laughs> you can't do this." But on the other hand, he couldn't yeah. to deliver the commission without putting the entire republic at risk. Are you going to put the entire republic at risk for one seat on the bench, Marbury? Very important to Marbury, but in the bigger picture, he wasn't willing to do it. So he ruled substantively in the Federalist favor, but basically said, you have no remedy in this court. We have no remedy we can grant you. So you're right, but you get nothing out of it. And then he used that as the opportunity to establish this power of judicial review. And I think the the reading of it within this article is much more accurate within the principles that Everyone on both sides of that divide would have agreed on under right. the Constitution. The checks and balances, the separation of powers, right? What we've seen since then is what it ultimately did was establish the Supreme Court as the most powerful in the three branches of government, which is not at all what the Constitution... They're supposed to be coextensive with each other. Right, right. And so the other thing that's interesting about it is that it didn't come to pass right away. This is a... Yes, tell me about that. So... After Marbury versus Madison, it was 54 years before the Supreme Court ever exercised its power to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional, which they did in Dred Scott, which, of course, kicked off the Civil War. So what ended up happening, and, you know, you're a libertarian, so I can talk about Spooner (laughs) with you, which, by the way, as much as I don't like libertarians, I love Spooner because Spooner was a ferocious abolitionist but fiercely anti-Civil War because of the power the Civil War was imbuing in the federal government, right? If the Southern Sounds states right. wanted to leave, if the Southern states wanted to leave, even for a bad reason like slavery, they get to leave. Yeah, definitely. What's 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 fascinating about this, if you're if you're a fan of Spooner, is that the the power of judicial review did not really come to life and become abused until we entered into a post-Civil War era where the federal government had established its ultimate power, which was to use its military force to compel states to stay in the Union. Oh, I have to say, it was also right after that, because this is what I was saying in the beginning. Like, it seems to me that it's self-evident that the that the remedy for unconstitutional congressional law was just uh, not to enforce it on the state level because the federal government did not have a real enforcement mechanism. It didn't have a federal police force to actually go in. And then I was like, yeah, so that's why the FBI is and the Department of Justice is unconstitutional. And guess what? It was established after the Civil War because they were still having problems getting the South to abide by unconstitutional congressional law. Uh-huh. And so so what happens you know, with Dred Scott, Dred Scott is the, the Supreme Court finally exercising this power 54 years after Marbury versus Madison exercising that power for the second time, the Civil War arises in part out of that decision, which establishes the ultimate federal power, which is to use military might to force the states to their knees. And one of the things I really liked about the article is that he said at one point that this power of nullification and this obligation of nullification, on one hand, is George Wallace barring the gates to the school, the doors to the schools. Um, and I can't remember the, the other the other one that he mentioned, but on the they gave a contrasting one, um, which was very positive. And it's like that's how all of the Constitution works, right? Like with the right of free speech comes the fact that you have to hear ugly things you might not want to hear, right? With 
the Second Amendment. You have the right to defend yourself, but guns may be in the hands of criminals, right? Every one of these these rights, every one of these freedoms comes with a cost. And yes, with the with the free speech, the difference also is that we have remedies for this stuff. There is tort law. If you use speech to inflict emotional distress intentionally, or if you use free speech to cry fire in a crowded building and people get hurt and property gets damaged, you are responsible for that. Mm-hmm. No. So uh, I'm just saying it's it's not like there's a free for all. No, it's, it's that not. there is a process in place. It's just not a priori restraints or whatever with the case. And of if a government free, official nullifies without justification, they're going to face consequences for that. Right. Because there are uh, either other people within their own branch or there are other uh, branches that there are have other that. branches. So that what have is that... the remedy for Supreme Court overreach now? There isn't any now. Right. That's the problem. Right. That's why they overreach. And that's why I think I talked to you about this before. It, I learned this in law school and it dr- drove me insane at the time. And it drives me insane to this day that the Commerce Clause is more important in our constitutional jurisprudence in terms of the power of the federal government than the Tenth Amendment. That just makes no sense yes, to me. Yes, right, right. It's so right? overread. You talk about the FBI. The whole existence of the FBI rests on the Commerce Clause, on this expansive reading of the Commerce Clause. And then you get into substantive due process. And substantive due process is just the Supreme Court saying, well, it's something has to be unconstitutional because we think it's wrong. Right. It's not in the Constitution, but you know, it emanates out from other parts of the Constitution. We just uh, think it's wrong, so it's unconstitutional. So the the remedy should be what you were saying, they should, these justices should be impeached. But I fear that if we were to suggest that now, the first one to go would be Clarence Thomas. What do you think of Clarence Thomas anyway? Well, I like Clarence Thomas because um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think the idea of interpreting the constitution, understanding the constitution from any perspective other than reading these words as they were used at the time they were written. Original textualism is what this guy calls it. It's the same, it's going down the same ideological madness yeah. of something like substantive due process, which, you know, very few people can articulate what substantive due process is. <laughs> it's just whatever the Supreme Court thinks is fair. What do you mean yeah. whatever you think is fair? Why do we have a constitution then? Right? Yeah, it's like, the invisible was, words. It's the invisible right. stuff that's that should have been in there that have to be in there right so stuff that it, and that's literally what if you read some of those substantive due process cases that's what they talk about well this is stuff that we think has to be there because other things are there well no i right. mean it, if it's not there it's 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 not, it's there. not there i mean and it, when it takes 100 200 years for it to be needed obviously the system was not meant to have to need it like the fbi like why was it 100 years to have to to have that if right, it well, was a legitimate, if, it, if you needed it to enforce the Commerce Clause, why did it take a hundred years for that to come up? Well, and they, I mean, we could do a whole hour just on the Commerce Clause in terms oh, yes. of you know their their desire to regulate commerce between the states, and then how they expanded that into, um, you know, if you read like the National Labor Relations Act or the Fair Labor Standards Act, which are areas where I have some some measure of expertise, the expansiveness of their definition of something affecting interstate commerce, thus that such that the federal government has authority over it is so insane and crazy that, I mean, it, it's irrational and it, it really is, is unjustifiable except by the weird academics that get paid to teach constitutional law. Right. Um, you know, um, and it leads to things like, you know, 
we have this it's so bizarre that we have so many people in the country right now that are obsessed with the idea of you know democracy our sacred democracy oh democracy is this <laughs> our <thing>. democracy <laughs> well wait a minute then why is it that you're so reluctant to solve policy questions democratically through democratic processes right. rather than by by court processes there's a, a great quote and i think it's you know I'm not a fan of his, but I think it's Roberts who made who said this, and I'm I'm paraphrasing badly, but he essentially said that, and he blamed the left for it more, but I think the right's equally responsible. That what we have come to in this country is we now run to the Supreme Court to settle all of our political disputes over yeah. policy, and that's a very bad world for us to live in because ultimately, and you're seeing the state, it undermines people's respect and integrity of the court itself because the court can't have an integrity any integrity in a system where what it is called upon to do is to resolve policy disputes that we can't resolve politically but that's been going on that's been the problem with supreme court for what 50 60 years i mean maybe longer but like absolutely major major problem all that stuff in the 60s and 70s that were policy decisions maybe even in the 30s well, i would say start, start really starting with the civil war Right. I think going back to the Civil War, right? Like, I mean, all of these things that over and over and over again, whether it's, you know, desegregate, I mean, you know, Brown versus Board of Education was what, 50, 58, 55, somewhere in there, 54, somewhere in there. Um, you know, these things that people feel are these desperate moral issues that need to be resolved. But what what other way do we have to really resolve the most desperate moral issues but by the messiness of democratic process, right? Like, you know, I, I say this with abortion all the time. Why is it a solution that we want to give nine unelected clerics the ability to decide when life begins? I mean, we're talking about right. one of the most fundamental metaphysical, spiritual, and spiritual right. questions. It's not a scientific question because science can't tell you when a fetus is a person, right? I mean, it's, it's a spiritual and metaphysical question and it, it can't be resolved judicially. And and this actually brings up something that I think will plug into our conversation about ideology and libertarianism is that uh, now we get to the point where the real problem, if you have just this federal system where policy is set by these unelected judges and encroaches into areas that should be reserved by the states and um, all this kind of stuff, then you start then you start having to face the problem of having a lot of uh, of differing value systems like religion the abortion thing to me is very much like a church thing like are you a human being in the secular world is that how the laws are or are you a you know a creature composed of body and soul made to the image and likeness of god in which case it starts first but there's also the ideology i feel like we've been implanted with a foreign ideology that is not like liberal, I mean, like capital L, classical liberal, we've been implanted with this ideology. I'm reading a lot about Fabianism, socialism, collectivism, technocracy, all of this stuff. Not, It's not American, but it's so fundamentally different that when we have these clashes, they're irreconcilable. So I would say the founders were pretty brilliant in that the principle of subsidiarity, which I think is embedded in our systems, is where like just bring it to the lowest level and if you bring it to the lowest level where these things are resolved at the most local possible place then at least you can conceivably choose like venue shop or whatever for yourself you could you could move across fresno and not have to move to another country uh -huh. if you aren't 
if you if there is a clash of values and ideology. But I think that's you know I I think that the founders were right and that we could actually have tolerated these ideological infiltrations if we kept true to the law as they wrote it. But I feel like it's been a multi-pronged approach to corrupt the ideology and corrupt the process. Well, I'll close with this. I agree with you. And the reason I agree with you is because I actually think the Constitution is brilliantly written. And I think it's written very much for the times we have now. Yeah. People have this idea, this false idea of this American unity that you know, maybe existed at some point, but I don't really think it did. It certainly did not exist at the time that the Constitution was written. The founders were dealing with these colonies that were deeply ideologically, religiously, politically divided. And they were trying to figure out how to knit this country together through these incredibly diverse and divided people who not only didn't agree with each other on many things, they also didn't like each other a lot. I mean, it was it was a very bitter time, and they they wrote this thing that is designed to make a country out of these types of disparate and divisive feelings. If we want this constitution to help us to live together as divided as we are, that's why that original textualism is so important because they knew how to do it because that's what they were dealing with. That's what it was written for. And I would say not only the originalist textualists, textualism that takes the Constitution, and I would say the Declaration of Independence is a foundational document that reflects what they were thinking. Also, the Federalist Papers inform it, but the Anti-Federalist Papers also inform what the objections were, and I would add to your idea of like these ideological differences, value systems, religion, that the reason it applies to today is that it had all the the actual transformation of society was already in the works in that it wasn't a pure agrarian society that all had the same interests, all had the same geology and geography. You had agrarians, you had you had places that were hot, places that grew stuff, places that harvested, harvested, processed. You had textiles in the north where it was cold. You had places that had water, places that did not have a lot of water. You had this move towards uh, merchants, towards trade. You had the issues of tariffs. You had all of these things that were already on the scene. Even even the question of slavery was an issue from the beginning. I mean, they mm-hmm. knew that was something they had to deal with. So they they contemplated these conflicting concepts even even the concept of technological change not not high tech but but you know industry influencing culture that that's what the the looseness of it all was meant to accommodate and i think the subsidiarity is an essential part the electoral college an essential part because you can't have the agrarians totally outvoted by the bourgeoisie or whatever and and i do i mean Whatever. We'll have to talk about anarchism and libertarianism at the next show, but it looks like the dog has is your little alarm clock. Yeah, the, the, the border collie's had it. She's ready to go run around. Yeah, good. Yeah, border collies. Yes, yes. She'll start nipping at your heels. <laughs> so that was excellent. Super, super terrific. Thank you so much. And um, I highly recommend people read this book, The Oppressible Myth of Marbury by Michael Stokes Paulson, but I really appreciate 
that I was just so enamored by it that I didn't didn't understand that uh, the bigger context. And I don't think he he actually treats it there. So I really appreciate your insight into that. And I can't wait until next time because I really want to talk about ideological journeys with you and other stuff, too. So thank you so much, Anthony. And I uh, hope to see you next time soon. I hope things are going well. I'm setting up that Homesteaders Roundtable with you and some people I know who are into permaculture, farming, homesteading. Talk about your new place. I want to hit drought talk, even though it's absolutely pouring out right now. It hailed yesterday. Anyway, thank you so much, Anthony Raimondo. And thank you all for listening. This has been a live episode of Deep Dives with Monica Perez.